0: West community church living life as friends with faith through knowing god loving others and making a difference summer's almost here it's kind of teasing us isn't it so that brings a question up to mind in, in, in my mind how many of you love camping without any of the conveniences. You just love sleeping on the ground. You love uh, going to, at best, a dirty, m- cleaned once every season pit toilet or maybe a shovel. How many of you like that kind of camping? Raise your hands. Okay. A few of you have hang-ups. Now, How many of you love the idea much better of being in the outdoor, beautiful, magnificent wilderness and having power so you have a microwave and a refrigerator and an oven and a stove and you have water and you have sewer so you actually have your own clean, private shower and bathtub in a luxury RV out in the middle of the wilderness? How many like that idea a whole lot better? Okay, okay, so we love hookups, right? That's kind of a little bit of what the series is about. Church, hangups and hookups. We've got all some mixed baggage. We've had various experiences with the church, and some of them have not been great, right? And some of them have been fantastic. And uh, so we're in a series trying to look at a way that God wants us to begin to think uh, differently about church. Now, Because Jesus says things like this. He says uh, the church is the focus of his plan, which is a mystery to all of us, right? But he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And he gives us this, this amazing picture of the church, us, together as a major powerful force in the world. I don't know if that matches fully everybody's perception but that's the invitation and as we look at to continue to look at Ephesians from chapter 2 on Paul focuses his attention a whole lot more to talking about the relationships that make church compelling and make a church strong and vibrant but i got to admit this last week while i was thinking about this series and thinking about the title and everything else a weird question came to mind for which I know the answer, but I don't know the, didn't know the reason for the answer. Maybe you already know that answer, but uh, the question was this. Why is it such a big deal that certain kinds of electrical plugs have three prongs and others only have two? I mean, hey, I've got an extension cord at home that the ground wire broke off of, and it's still, everything works just fine. Right? Why is it important to have that ground wire? No big deal, right? Well, as I was thinking about this last week, I talked to Jeremy and he said that there was a classic, if not classy, video illustration that kind of got to the point of that question and answer. So let's turn our attention to the screen. Ah, classic, if not classy, huh? <laughs> But that actually gets in the ballpark of the reason for the uh, ground wire. Uh, years ago, when they first started putting electricity out, they sent it down the lines so with just hot and neutral, and they quickly began to discover, according to people who are smarter than me and can explain it in terms I understand, that people got electrocuted and killed that way. And they discovered in that process that while hot and neutral can send just 110 volts, if somebody's standing on ground, especially wet ground, without shoes on, that the ground actually becomes a conductor of electricity. And for some reason, that 110 volts gets multiplied many, many times, resulting in fried cat or fried human, as the case may be. So they discovered that all you have to do to prevent most of that is for at the base station and at everybody's home, run a wire into the ground, grounding your system. Now, just so some of you don't go home in a panic, the reason two-prong cords still survive is because some are low enough power draw that they don't stand a threat of electrocuting you, or some are related to things like radios that have a problem functioning well with a ground wire. But uh, Two-wire still survives, but so do we, in generally speaking. As I read Ephesians uh, this past week in preparation for this, I've read it dozens and dozens of times. It's one of my favorite books over the course of my life, and I've always glossed over this particular passage. And actually, after studying it this last week, I really regret it. Because in the passage we're going to look at today, it contains three images. And these three images, I think, uh com- Uh, comprise one of the most compelling instructional passages in all of the Bible on what it means to be a follower of Jesus and particularly what it means to be the church. So our title today is Three Pronged Power, How to Live Safe and Vibrant Life as Followers of Jesus. Now the bare bones structure of the outline today I borrowed from Tim Keller and then put a bunch of flesh on it myself. But his outline of the way we're going to deal with this is through three questions or through three comments basically. What were we? What problem do these three images address? We're going to look at what are we in terms of how does God describe through these three images who we are and what He's making us to be, who He declares us to be, and then how do we become what we are? Because the reality is, we look at those three images, none of us are really fully there. And the invitation today is for us to learn to live in the full beauty and glory of these three images in our individual lives and together as a church. So let's read the passage. Ephesians 2, verse 19. It reads this way. Consequently... You are no longer foreigners or strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So what were we? The problem, the three images in this passage address. Uh, the problem that it addresses, it says here, is Paul says, you are no longer what you were, which is, he says, a foreigner and a stranger. Now, these words are very much like we use them in American culture today. A lot of people refer to people who are immigrants who don't speak our language and don't live according to our culture as, what, aliens and foreigners. So we're used to those types of terms being used in our culture today. The problem is that the people that Paul is talking to, are not culturally and linguistically foreigners. So the question becomes, what is Paul trying to say? Now, I think there's a number of different things he's probably trying to say. He's probably trying to talk about the distance between uh, people who are n- unbelieving and people who are believing and that distance, that gap of that decision and that faith thing being happening in their life. I think he's talking about the distance that happens in our life when sin damages us and damages us and it damages our understanding of who God is or, or who we are or or damages relationships. But But I think Paul is saying something even deeper than that, something deeper that I think all philosophers, a lot of philosophers, actually say is a universal struggle we all face. For instance, the German philosopher Martin Heidegger says it this way. He says it is, das unheimliche. The German is a great language when you want to say something bluntly, isn't it? It's from the root word heim, which means home. So unheimlich means homeless. But as the philosophers have talked about this idea, the idea has morphed into the idea that Heidegger says all of us struggle with this. So all of us struggle with this lonely angst, this eerie, uncanny loneliness, this need to, at some level, conceal ourselves, to remain private, unknown, and yet we want to be known, so we struggle with this sense of loneliness. In our natural sin-affected state, we are all exiles, homeless, foreigners. We all wrestle with it. And we all wrestle with it for for the reason that not only, not only do we feel lonely, but we both, we both desire to be known and we fear being known, right? There's parts of us that we don't want other people to see, that we try to keep hidden for fear of their reaction, and yet at the same time we don't want to hide. So there's this, there's this tension going on inside of us. Now, others, other philosophers actually expand this idea to something that's very similar to the clip we showed a few weeks ago from Akilah and the Bee. It's the, it's the clip where they say the greatest fear is not failure. Our greatest fear is our strength of being really strong. And why is that so? Some philosophers put it this way. They say, we fear our beauty when we see beauty and the strength that becomes unbearable to us. Why is that? And it's, they say it's because beauty and strength offer us a glimpse of the ideal eternity, the, the heaven that we all long for. And when we compare our current reality to that, we find ourselves faced with these problematic questions and conclusions, one of which is when we are faced that, that idea without God, we end up automatically coming to the conclusion that everything ends up being ashes someday. We all die and everything means nothing. I mean, what good is your job and the success you have in your job? What good are the accomplishments and the accolades you get after you die? They will all be forgotten, including you will be forgotten. A former colleague of mine used to say it this way. He used to ask the question. He said, so do you believe in life after death or do you just believe that you have 70 or 80 years and then you become fertilizer pushing up a few daisies for a few years until you're completely forgotten? Albert Camus, a French writer, says that most people look at this idea, this conclusion, and they hide that conclusion from themselves. Instead, we go through our day and another great meal or a temporary accolade over some accomplishment that we have or the smile of someone we admire or distraction of entertainment is adequate to get us distracted and to avoid these ultimate realities. But the reality is, for most, if we look at life, we have to look at the idea that we are a foreigner, we're lost, we're homeless, we're lonely, we're uncomfortable, we're anxious, we're concerned about being known and not wanting to be known. That is where we were. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I would invite you to consider the reality that most secular philosophers, as well as our texts and Christian writers, say is a reality, that everything ends up in ashes. And I don't want you to leave depressed today, so I don't want you to think about that for very long. What I want you instead to think about is the three images, the what are we now? The three images paint a picture of how God sees us and the relationship God invites us into. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then these images are the picture of what you are being invited to be a part of, to live in. Namely, the three images of the text are fellow citizens, uh, members of God's household or God's family, and us as a temple where God's Spirit Dwells. So it's the metaphor of a nation, the metaphor of a family, and the metaphor of a temple where God's presence dwells. Now, as we look at these images, notice one thing—actually, uh, two things—to begin with. Notice none of these individ- uh, none of these images are individualistic; they're all about relationship. And the second thing we need to notice about them is not only are all these images about relationship; these images progress from the least intense to the most intense. For example, in our relationship with God, they progress from least intense to most intense. God is a king, and he lives in the same country as his people, but God as a father lives in the same household as you. And yet, if you are a temple, God lives within you, not outside of you, not around you, but within you. It, It goes from least intense to most intense in our relationship with other people, especially Talking about the church is what he's talking about. So it talks about that specifically. It says, we are co-citizens. As co-citizens, you may live next door or you may live miles away. But if you are family, if you're brothers and sisters, you share the same space. You live in the same home, feet away. You rub each other every day. If you're stones in a building, there is no distance between you and others. You are shaped to fit perfectly with those around you, and you are cemented to one another. Each image is more relationally intense. Now, the problem for many of us is we actually really like the first two images, in theory at least. I mean, if we're co-citizens. We get to be part of the same nation. We get to cheer and identify with each other. We get to cheer for the same causes, but we don't have to get too close. We don't have to get too involved. We love the image of being adopted as sons and daughters because it meets one of the greatest needs we all have, one of the greatest needs of being loved, being secure, being wanted, and we love those things. And it results for many of us in a two-pronged faith that really attaches us to real power but it's still not grounded and it can still make us susceptible to becoming fried cat, right? Paul's actually saying through the teaching here to us, he says, the more powerful the force that shapes you, the more fitted you are to everyone else who is shaped by that same force. And each one of these images is a powerful force. Think about it. Culture and nationalism is a very powerful force, isn't it? It creates norms. It creates affinities and comfort zones of what we're comfortable with. So Wendy likes to tell the story of the first year we moved from Oklahoma to Oregon years ago. We grew up in Minnesota in largely rural conservative communities. We went to Tulsa and lived in a a community that I would describe as the best of Midwest values with a touch of southern decency and hospitality associated with it. And then we ended up in Oregon. And one of the first Sundays we were there, we went to the park... And we were playing and Derek was just a wee little guy and we were playing on the, we were playing on the teeter totter and I'm in my nice, uh, shorts and my nice dress sandals and my button down short sleeve shirt and I'm playing with Derek and right next to me Wendy starts to laugh because she goes, you're not in Kansas anymore, are you? Because the guy next to me was dressed very earthy long, beaded, braided hair, tattoos, bare feet, toenails painted pink and purple, (laughs) playing with his either his son or his significant other's son, I don't know which. And, you know, if we saw that type of a person in a New Albany or Westerville Park, parents, I think most of you parents would be going to a different park. There's different affinities between cultures. Eugene has a different affinity from northeast Columbus. Uh, this last week and for the last several weeks, Todd Rose, our missionary to Saratov, Russia, has been uh, emailing me, and it's a great illustration of this cultural affinity, the nationalism that we can sometimes feel, that identity. He's been talking all about the thing going on with Putin in the news. All of us have been watching. And, and over there, most of the people don't like Putin. They fear him. They respect him, but they fear him. And there's a, there's a saying in Russia that, that patriotism ends at the threshold of your door, meaning you're loyal to your family, but there is no such thing as patriotism to the country. And yet with the outmaneuvering of NATO and the U.S. in Crimea and Ukraine that Putin has done, it's created huge nationalism, and along with that, anti-U.S. sentiment. And it's put Todd as a U.S. citizen in a really interesting place the last few weeks. Normally they go out on May 9th and celebrate Victory Day with him. It's the second greatest holiday in Russia. It's parties everywhere and they like to go out. And He emailed me saying, you know what, because of the nationalism and the anti-U.S. sentiment, we're just going to play it a little bit closer to the vest this time. And then we're not really going to go out that much. Ministry is going fantastic. He emailed me two, three days ago, and they just had some of their largest services, people coming to faith. It's just amazing ministry going on, and yet the decisions he's facing are much more difficult. So um, would you just join me for a second? Let's just pause and pray for him. Lord, we ask that you continue to bless Todd, that you would be at work there and in the midst of all the uh, anti-U.S. stuff that's going on, Lord, I pray that you would help Todd get in positions where he's able to show your love and kindness across those differences and that many, many people would continue to be one to following you and serving you, and that you would continue to grow the ministry in the church there through him in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. More powerful than citizenship and culture, though, is family, right? Who your parents were, uh, your siblings are, and how they treated you affects you much greater. And if you were a brick, going back to the images, being shaped in the oven, or by a chisel to fit perfectly, you are even closer And it's more intense, more personal, and actually probably even harder to stay engaged in the process to become who God wants you to be in those relationships. This is where the word consequently in the text becomes important. It's it's a word very similar to therefore. And remember a couple of weeks ago, Jeremy said, if you see therefore in the text of the Bible, learn what it's there for. So you learn to tie what was said before that to what's said after that. Consequently is the same type of word. And what Paul is saying is that prior to this point in the text, everything been, he's been saying is describing this powerful, shaping force. And we could summarize that by just saying that powerful shaping, that ultimate powerful shaping force in our life is the Holy Spirit making real God and the gospel in our lives. The shaping power of the gospel of Jesus, therefore, in Paul's images, doesn't want us to stop at being a good citizen, a good follower of the King, nor does it want us to stop at being a part of God's family. But the power of God is most seen and he wants to get us to the place where we are so solid, we are so shaped as stones in his temple, or later on he uses a metaphorical synonym of the body where, where the cells, where the members of the body inextricably tied, inextricably tied to each other. That's where he wants us to be. That's his picture of church. It's all about relationships, being tied to one another more than we are to any other affinity. And what Paul is saying is if we allow the gospel to shape us like that, then the result is that shaping will create a greater affinity between us as the church than any other shaping force on the planet, whether it's sports or politics or whatever. So the question is for all of us that we have to look at is, do we feel like we have that level of affinity with the people in our church? If we don't, then the legitimate question Paul is asking us is, are we allowing the gospel to truly shape us, or are we allowing other things to take priority? in shaping us. These three images say who who we are as followers of Jesus and what it means to be God's people, God's church, and it describes a picture that takes us beyond anything we can imagine in terms of the goodness and the power and the effectiveness of church. So how do we become what we are? Because we obviously don't live that fully. None of us do, right? Let's look at that from the application question. The application question of what ways do these three images affect how we live each day. Well, we're going to talk about three different ways they affect our daily living. The first one is um, it speaks to the reality that faith cannot be vibrant apart from relationship and church. Now, I often hear a lot of people quote Jesus where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. And the argument therefore becomes, well, I can be a really mature, growing, faithful Christian with just one or two other Christians in my life. I don't need the larger institution of the church to grow and be a good Christian. My response to that would be, well, technically, theoretically, sure. There are many reasons I could give you why that theory often doesn't intersect reality, but we don't have time for that today. Let's just go, even if theory is reality on that. If you're um, out in the wilderness and you're a mountain man and you're looking for shelter, then a couple stones and a few logs that are fitted together that keep a good portion of the rain and most of the wind out probably looks pretty attractive to you. But just a couple stones and a couple beams fitted together can't give a picture of the immense beauty, the safety, the strength, the glory that God wants us to be as effectively as thousands of perfectly fitted stones in a great immense cathedral, can it? So why would we settle for something so small and so weak when if we learn God's idea of church, it leads to something grand, something power, powerful, something beautiful, you see, studies for the last 30 years have consistently shown in the church that between 70 and 85% of Americans, they range over the years, uh, believe that you can be a mature, growing, faithful Christian without necessarily being regularly involved in relationship or in the church. But that's a little bit like a rock on the side of the hill saying, I can be beautifully formed into the temple of God and fitted into the temple of God without any shaping power other than erosion or wind and water. Is that how the great stones of the of the National Cathedral were formed? Just that way, being out on your own by yourself. You see, the idea, even though American society trumpets it so strongly, of private, individual spirituality, is a non-Christian concept that is absolutely, completely foreign to Paul, to Jesus, and the Bible. Sure, you can be saved and not really be a vital part of a church. But no matter what age you are, no matter how many scriptures you can quote, no matter how much theology you can answer on a test, you will always be an immature, undeveloped Christian experiencing only a fraction, a tiny fraction, of what God wants you to experience without active, ongoing, intentional, close relationships, which is a part of the definition of what church is all about. If you want to grow... In Jesus, you have to be faithfully involved in the relationships and mission of a church, as imperfect as all churches are. And we'll talk more about the imperfect in just a second. Second, these three images speak to our need to risk being known by others. See, we love the idea of citizens. We love the idea of being adopted, the identity, the love, security, all that kind of stuff. But the reality of family is a whole lot more challenging than that, isn't it? I mean, we struggle, I think, with the church of wanting to take the gospel invitation to develop relationships among us that are as deep as a family, because in family, we have a difficult time hiding things. I mean, certainly, every family that I know has family secrets, but when we talk about family secrets, do we ever talk about them positively? Aren't family secrets almost always talked about as being those things that damaged us, those things that hurt us, those things that shamed us? So if we're talking about healthy relationships, secrets, hiddenness is not a part of it. So if you live in a family, the reality is they've wiped your bottom. When you've made a mess, they've cleaned up after you. When you've needed to blow your nose and you couldn't do it yourself, they've helped you. When you've been up, they've been there. When you've been down, they've been there. When you've succeeded, they've been there. When you've failed, they've been there. And along with that transparency of relationship, there also comes greater accountability because your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, when you get out of line, your kids, when you get out of line, tell you you're out of line, right? And they invite you to get back in line and they try to inspire you to stay true to the values the ideals of your family. So the question is, are there members of your spiritual community, this church, your small group, where the level of transparency is deep enough that they know your celebrated successes? And it's just like my kids. We tell them when they come home, they can talk all they want about their successes, but don't do it a lot outside because that's bragging, right? But home is a place that's safe for us to talk about our successes and celebrate those things. Do you have relationships where your weaknesses, your sins, your faults are honestly talked about? Your failures are honestly talked about with other people. And you're held accountable to being free of those sins and giving your God-given gifts back to God in service of people and His mission in this world. You see, citizens work together. They play together. They do hobbies together. Then they go home. Family lives together, eats together, cleans together. Any teens here or people who still act like teens? That's a hint. Cleans together. Families celebrate together and cry together. And stones in a temple live like family even more closely because there's absolutely no chance for secrets because we've invited God and others into our lives so powerfully that we cannot live hidden And there is no turning away from those relationships towards hiding anything because we're cemented together. There is a solid, stable safety in the closeness of those relationships with others and God. You know, many want to keep, and we struggle, I think we all struggle, with wanting to keep our relationship with God private. Our culture trumpets it. We don't want to talk about our prayer life a lot of times. We don't want to talk about where, where, where God's drawing us or where we're failing in our growth with God because it's uncomfortable. But Paul is telling us that the only way to grow, the only way to become mature, The only way to walk into the maximum experience of God's presence in our lives that we long for, that we're lonely for, that we know in our heart of hearts will solve the anxiety that we have in life, that sense of loneliness, is to have deep, transparent, open relationships with one another in which we talk deeply about our lives. And we pray not just for them, but we actually pray together with people and we worship together with people and we seek God together and we wrestle with life together and we serve in mission together with God. It takes a community. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book Four Loves in a chapter on friendship and He talks in there about his French, uh, there were three guys he talks about, himself and two other guys who were like co-best friends. It was Ronald, Charles, and and then C.S. Lewis. And we know Ronald better as J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings fame guy. Charles died, and it was a grieving moment for them. A huge grieving moment. And Lewis thought in the midst of that grief, he said, if anything, now that Charles is gone, Ronald and I will be even closer friends than before because it's just the two of us. And as the weeks and months went on, Lewis came to the conclusion that he was completely wrong. And he writes this. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. And if that's true of human relationships, how much more true is it of our relationship with God? How can we know, really know, Jesus and really know the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit outside of the community of the church? Are you keeping your, your faults private, so your, your struggles with handling money, or your struggles with parenting, or your struggles with your job or, or your relationship with God private? If you are, you will severely limit your growth in friendship with God and friendship with others, and you will live a life of stunted growth. Third, these images speak to the meaning of unity. Now, why is unity so important? Well, let's let's let Jesus' own words and his own prayer answer that in John 17, where Jesus prays this. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Unity is important, Jesus says, because our unity as the people of God, as the church, will result in the world knowing that they are loved by God when they see us. Unity is the essence of the glory of God. So what does that mean? What does Jesus mean by that? And how do Paul's three images help us understand that? Let's look at it some more. God wants to take us from foreigners... The text says, to a sense of citizenship, national identity and relationship. Uh, That's great. Right? But nations rise and fall, and there's still quite a bit of division among nations, isn't there? So it takes us deeper, he says, realizing that you are family, with God as your father. And that's amazingly beautiful. We've already talked about that, how that settles so many needs in us, but But families also have tension, and the reality is that there can be alienation of relationships even in families, right? Families are more stable than citizenship, but even more stable than that is being so finely shaped, so solidly made, so securely placed that we no longer have any worries of loss because we're rocks. We're cemented in the walls of God's temple. We're inhabited completely, permeated fully by God's presence. You see, Jesus and Paul are both telling us unity is based in the quality and the depth of our commitment to one another and the closeness of our relationships and that means in a world broken by sin, still struggling with all the imperfection, that God wants us to be committed to, in relationships to each other, in healthy long-term relationships where we are constantly being examples of giving grace and forgiveness and patience and, and that the love we show one another and cements us to one another becomes this kind of tenacious Jesus kind of patient forgiving love. It's not that we're going to be perfect. It's not that we're even going to be better than the people outside the church. That's not the point. Some of you struggle with church because of the hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is typically defined as either the church not living up to what they say they are going to be or not living up to what you believe the moral standards and social code of the Bible says they should be. And you define church in religious terms. And you've struggled with church because of the flaws and the imperfections of the church. And you have, in your mind, rightly, not engaged deeply or opened up honestly in relationship with other people in the church because in your mind they're no better than you. So why should you open up? Why should you trust that, your sin, yourself, your sins and your struggles, to something so imperfect? But Paul's saying that's not a right judgment of even what church is about. And you're judging based upon the wrong thing. Because just like Russians stick up for a guy that they fear and don't necessarily like and leave patriotism at the door, but yet they stick up and identify with for him or, or just as family and the ideal sticks up for each other, even when they may not be fully right, we still have each other's back, right? We stick up for each other even in the imperfection. And, and a stone in a great cathedral is solidly engaged with everyone around them and holding up the stones above them no matter what the storms of life bring. These are pictures of the path, of what it means to follow God and the purpose of being His church. You see, we typically judge church based on the wrong things. We judge based upon the failings and the imperfections, the entertainment, the educational value. Do we like how they're teaching? Do my kids enjoy the class? Do they like the music? Or or how does it meet my needs? But Paul is inviting us to a whole new idea of church. As relationship first, as a place where we give and receive in long-term healthy relationships, the self-sacrificing love of Jesus to one another, So that the five that we're praying for, who are not a part of church, who are disconnected, that we're praying for in our lives, will see truly good news, not perfection, but they will see a picture painted of grace and kindness and love that shows them a picture that says, God must love me that much, like that as well. God wants our church to be able to handle all of His power, of His creative, redempting love and glory. He doesn't want us to fry like cats. And that takes commitment to live these three images out. And I know, I know this is difficult. It's extremely difficult. We live busy lives. How can we commit to another thing or a small group or something like that? We have jobs. Some of you are are in careers where you expect to be transferred in a year or two. And and if I'm here only this amount of time, do I really want to invest at that level when I'm already so busy? It, it, It isn't easy. It takes intentionality to either commit to being a part of a small group or if you don't have time, to commit to leading one, maybe over the lunch hour in your business environment because that's the only place you can efficiently fit something in or, or intentional about setting evenings aside to not just have barbecues where fun is, where we need lots of that. We need to have fun. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but to also have intentionality in our conversations about our faith. See, the invitation of God to us today... For many of us here is to recommit to this, for some maybe to commit for the first time because this church is already one of the most committed relational churches I've ever been a part of. I'm so proud to be a part of this, but the invitation of God is will you commit or recommit today to living in the depth of relationship God calls us to as followers of Jesus who make up His church? And will you allow that commitment to reprioritize your loyalties so that He becomes your King and the people here become your co-citizens and then He becomes your Father and the people here become your family. And you grow to become so rock solid, so committed in healthy long-term relationships that we all know our imperfections and we don't even hide them. And because we love each other in spite of them, the world sees the greatest glory of God which is the fact that He loves them right now, right where they're at. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask uh, right now that Your Spirit would continue to work with us and thank You for the work You've done in us. I pray that You would dig these wells of relationship deeper in our lives. I pray for those here who are maybe sensing a little bit of overwhelmness right now with going, how can I ever commit to this because of life? And I pray that you'd take that overwhelmness away and that you would give them just one simple step. This is a journey. This is a path you're leading on. Give them one simple step to take. Something that fits or something that can be reprioritized. Lord, I pray that you'd speak right now about that to people. And Lord, for those here who have not made a decision to really be all in or follow you because they've judged the church based on imperfections. Lord, I pray that you would help them surrender that and see the church for what you want it to be and even engage in faith and say yes to you today. Lord, just come and continue to minister to us as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.